0: Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy mcphee Olabest. Our book today was published in 1970, and it's called Our Bodies, Ourselves, a Book by and for Women. And before we even talk about the content of this book, I want to pause for a minute and think about the weight of that title. For listeners who have been with us since the beginning of the podcast, you'll remember Gerda Lerner's book, The Creation of Patriarchy. And how there were ancient laws that designated women's bodies as belonging to men. For thousands of years, women were legally bought and sold by men. And that practice even continues today in some places. Men for millennia had the right to kill a woman for breaking certain laws. And again, that practice still continues in some places. Men had the right to kill a woman's baby if they decided to and it was legal to do so. Men had the legal right to rape and to beat their own wives until very, very recently, even in this country. And then think about the medical paternalism that we talked about in the book, The Yellow Wallpaper, and how women are not believed when they talk about their own physical and mental health. Then remember the speech, The Case for Birth Control, in the 1920s and 30s, how the Comstock laws forbade people from mentioning women's reproductive systems and how birth control was completely illegal. So women had no idea how to control their own pregnancies or births. So when we consider this historical timeline, it feels like a powerful act for women to proclaim our bodies, ourselves, a book by and for women. It's an act of claiming ownership and sovereignty over our own bodies. Um, Before we start, I also want to alert listeners that we do talk a lot about sexuality in this episode. And so if you've recommended this podcast to kids, just give it a listen once, um, and then you can decide um, who it's age appropriate for. Um, But before we start, I want to introduce my reading partner today, Jessica Harder. Hi, Jessica. Hi, Amy. I'm so, so excited to have you here today. Jessica is um, my cousin-in-law. She's Eric's cousin. Um, She is younger and cooler than we are. And (laughs) she's um, kind of uh, like in between the, I feel like in between the age and generation kind of of me and Eric and then of my daughters. So you're just like so cool and also just so... Uh, like so fashionable and you've like traveled around the world and my daughters just think you're the best. And so do I. So um, also listeners will remember Francis K. Olives, who did our episode on John Stuart Mill's The Subjection of Women a few months ago. And um, so that's Jessica's aunt. So um, Jessica, can you just introduce yourself and um, kind of talk about who you are, where you're from and some things that make you you? Uh, Yeah, sure. So I grew up in Southern California, born
1: in 1984. I grew up in a religious conservative upbringing and that uh, religion had a very strong patriarchal culture. Uh, I also have a Dutch background influence with my upbringing. My grandparents moved to the States from the Netherlands. And I didn't realize that a lot of my upbringing was actually because of that Dutch culture until I actually moved to the Netherlands and discovered that uh, the Dutch close culture is a lot more egalitarian than the United States culture. And I saw that a lot in the women in my life. My aunt, who was on the podcast, who you mentioned, and my mother and my grandmother were all very strong women in their relationships with their partners and so I had these strong women in my family and then I also had these this church that was very much about like the men ruling but I saw a lot of women kind of ruling and managing families so it was this very mixed message as I was growing up and with my church i was kind of trained that yeah you you're you know you get married you have lots of children and a husband and like this was what you're supposed to do but i honestly could totally care less about having kids and getting married it was just not on my radar at all and um my parents raised us also with this like very creative artistic influence in the home and that stirred up my desire to sew and design clothes, which I started doing at the age of four. All of my stuffed animals were very (laughs) well-dressed. I'm not surprised. (laughs) At five years old, I went to elementary school and I saw a career woman pick up a kid from school in a suit. And I thought she was like the most glamorous woman I've ever seen. <laughs> Never seen a career woman before in my life. All the women around me were stay at home moms. Yeah. And I knew I wanted to be her. Like I needed to be a career woman. Later, I figured out I could combine mm. the designing of clothes and a career in like one thing. And I knew that was my plan so at 16 I actually started working for a designer uh, and started designing and then 17 I was working um, for Nordstrom's on their fashion board at 18 I went to design school and um, at that time I also started doing yoga and meditation which became a big influence in my life And throughout school, I was working for a local designer. And then when I got graduated, I just decided to leave the country and move to the Netherlands and discover my my family's roots. I taught myself how to speak the language while I was living there. And um, I met my husband the very first week I moved there. So it was kind of like a meant to be travel Plus a husband destination.
0: <laughs> I didn't even know that, actually. I didn't know you met him the very first week.
1: That's yeah, crazy. I actually met him. My grandmother who I was living with her brother at the time. Um, she passed away the first week I was there mm-hmm. and I didn't go home for the funeral. So I found the church she went to when she lived there. And that's where I met him. Mm. Oh, that's- so it's like all these little pieces just fit together. Yeah, So pretty. Um, so yeah, while I was living there, that that definitely extended my stay. I was planning on six months; it ended up being six years, uh, thanks to my wonderful husband. <laughs> I so I started working in tourism. I worked for a bike company. I worked in the fashion industry, of course, and um, my one of my jobs that sent me back to work or back to school to study the Dutch language and i started doing translation work for them translating like employee contracts and things like that and then after six years in the netherlands um i ended my stay there working for my favorite designer that i never even imagined i would be working for me and my husband moved back to or moved back for me to the states um, and his first time living out of his country and we ended up moving in with my grandfather and um, my Dutch grandfather, and we ended up taking care of him for four years. Um, so then I I knew I needed to have a career switch at the time. there was like a lot of things about the fashion industry that were weighing me down, the consumerism, um, not uh, having to work like 70 hour work week in order to get promoted, toxic environment. And so I It was obvious to me after 13 years of doing yoga that that was where I was going to move into. I completed my 200-hour yoga teacher training alliance, and then I started teaching. I started teaching seniors at a senior center. Uh, I was teaching at a rock climbing gym, taught yoga studios. I've taught Olympic athletes, and I've also taught in drug and alcohol rehabilitation centers. Then I went back and got another yoga degree, completed my 500 hour yoga teacher training program. And during that program, the week that we were doing the prenatal yoga study is the week that I conceived my son. Oh, it's awesome. I love it. It's like, again, meant to be. (laughs) I know. Yeah. It's so funny. All these things just kind of fit into life in a way you just could not have planned. Mm. Um, I had a really difficult pregnancy and birth complications. It was definitely a challenge. But during my pregnancy, I was able to start teaching prenatal yoga, which helped me kind of manage the pregnancy and get through that and also prepare for birth. The day before my labor started, this is also kind of one of those funny things. Mm -hmm. I was leading a teacher training program for prenatal yoga teachers (laughs) and then like the next day my labor started which was two weeks early so it was like not something I imagined would have happened and so after my son was born I started I switched to working part-time I started teaching baby and me yoga which was awesome because he could come with me and I breastfed him while I was teaching a lot of times Uh, it's like an amazing mother work environment And um, I went back into another teacher training program and I got trained to teach trauma-informed yoga in a drug and alcohol rehab setting. And then I got pregnant again with my daughter. Uh, Had another very challenging pregnancy. And I had to quit training the Olympic athletes because of some of the problems with pregnancy. And just at the very end of that pregnancy, COVID hit. And I went on maternity leave and realizing that there's, you know, a lot of support that's needed through this. And we're also separate. I started a women's group for women who were giving birth during the pandemic.
0: Hmm.
1: And we met every week on Zoom. We still meet today and we offer our support to each other as we've gone through like really difficult times with, you know, her pregnancy, birthing, and mothering all during this pandemic.
0: Hmm.
1: That's awesome. Um, I didn't know you were doing that. Yeah. Um, one of the babies just had their first year birthday Aww, party yesterday. So Amazing. All the babies are starting to turn ones, um, like right around now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I chose to take an extended maternity leave because of, you know, COVID recovery complications and uh, my family's needs but I got really restless and not working. And so I started writing a book about prenatal yoga and I'm in the middle of that right now. And I just went back to work and started teaching prenatal yoga this week to some private clients.
0: Awesome! So great. Um, That's a great introduction, Jessica. Thank you so much. Um, And then the other question I like to ask my reading partners is, um, kind of what attracted you to the breaking down patriarchy project or what does that phrase mean to you just kind of any way you want to interpret that well as you know i've been listening
1: to every single episode that comes out mm-hmm. like the day that they come out and just loving the work that you've been creating mm, thanks and so when we started discussing doing this podcast and you mentioned this book i was very excited uh I had the pregnancy version of the book already in my library when you mentioned it to me. My views of pregnancy and birth have warped dramatically through my experience of having babies. As a kid, I was groomed by the leaders of my religion to have lots of babies, and it was seen as this beautiful divine purpose for women to have lots of children. Pregnancy was definitely idealized and glorified as almost like this godly mission for women. But when I finally experienced pregnancy, it was so far from the truth. I had over 110 different pregnancy symptoms, ER urgent care visits almost every single week. I lost the use of my hands, fractured pev- had a fractured pelvic bone, could hardly walk at the end of the pregnancy and had to quit jobs during both of my pregnancies through this. I became totally obsessed with research on like how to manage the pain symptoms, how to prepare for birth. I mean, I just was like, this is insane. If this is what pregnancy is like, then birth is going to be like a hundred times worse. So I need to like train myself for mm. this. Um, so I spent probably around two to five hours of research a day during both of my pregnancies. Uh, My doctors told me that I knew too much and I should stop researching. My husband was like, you're crazy, obsessed (laughs) about this. And same with my doula. No way. Um, They all said the same thing. And I was even not admitted to birth classes because the person leading the class told me I wouldn't learn anything new. It was mm-hmm. obvious that I knew everything, what was in the class.
0: Well, that might so, have been true, though, to be honest. <laughs> like, is it, like I know. <laughs> it, I think it was. You should have been teaching. I think teaching it was because
1: I squirmed my way into one birthing class, and <laughs> I did know everything. And I was actually started, like, teaching part of it. Uh-huh. So, um, so to say I was prepared for labor is, like, an understatement. Mm-hmm. I... Um, I really feel like that preparation made for my experience to be something incredible. Mm-hmm. Immediately after my son was born, I was hemorrhaging, and I had the doctors were yelling in the room. Uh, I had 45 minutes minutes left to live, and the room was just complete chaos.
0: Oh my gosh!
1: Uh, two weeks later, I ended up back in the ER due to hemorrhaging, and. I had to have a surgery that ended up saving my life. And then with my daughter's birth, same medical situation arose and threatened my life again. Because of the urgency during my daughter's birth, um, the doctors couldn't wait for the anesthesiologist. And so they had to have, I had to have surgery to stop that bleeding without anesthesia or medication. Oh my gosh, Jessica. (laughs) I'm so sorry. Very, very intense experience. Yeah. Uh, This is just very far from the fairy tale pregnancy and birth I was told women had Mm
0: -hmm. from
1: my religious background. But having all of my knowledge about how my body worked in these life-threatening situations allowed me to remain completely calm and collected. I can tell you I've I've never felt so at peace especially even in the chaos. Um, I was able to have real conversations with my doctors, understand what they were saying and doing. I felt the knowledge I had gave me power in this very powerless situation. And this is why when you told me that book title, I was so excited Mm because I knew how important that was to know about your own body and how it worked. This book is all about gaining that power and control over your body and through the knowledge over your body and learning what society or in this case, my religion tells us about our bodies that are simply not true. Hmm. So I was like thrilled. Mm -hmm. This is another one of those things like it was meant to be that this Mm -hmm. book was
0: like for me to read with you. Mm hmm. I totally agree. Actually, Jessica, every episode I've done has been really special in a in a different way, right? In a really unique way. And I, I do feel like when you and I started talking about you doing an episode, it just like suddenly the stars aligned and it locked in. And I was like, oh my gosh, you were meant to do this book or this. It was just so perfect. And I have to throw in too. I mean, I even said in the intro like that you and your sister, especially like in our family, in the extended family, um, you always, you have a way of like carrying yourself and it does, it has to do with the way you dress too. And like the, the pictures you post about you doing like, um, races and running, like you are, you, I don't know if you would agree with this, Jessica, but you have always just seemed really at home in your body. And I always like, Loved my daughters watching you and Tara honestly, and like having that input in their lives of seeing young women who just like walked confidently, dressed confidently, and just seemed really at home in their bodies, so it I think you're a really great influence in the family. Um and thanks for sharing all of thanks that. For me. Yeah, it's true. Um and yeah, thank you for also sharing all of that about your birth experience. And I think it is, again, it's interesting. It might for listeners they might be like, wait, is I mean, fascinating story and so interesting. But like, what does that have to do with patriarchy? And we're that's that's the thing is like again in that title, our bodies, ourselves, and um and as we consider how usually how strongly. Um, patriarchy has taken over ownership of women's bodies in so many different contexts. Um, and childbirth is one of those contexts. And so that that story of you owning your body and you having sovereignty and you having knowledge and how um, that helped you to have peace and um, authority in that situation, I think is so powerful and it's a perfect way to start. So. Um, okay, well, let's introduce the book. Um, I had heard the title, Our Bodies, Ourselves, like that was just kind of like in my mind as a title floating around that I was kind of aware of, but I didn't know what it was at all until we did this project. So I'll just really quickly introduce the book. Um, I took this description from the website, ourbodiesourselves.org. So you can, um, look at that if, if listeners are interested in hearing more or in, in learning more. So it says in May of 1969, as the women's movement was gaining momentum and influence in the Boston area and elsewhere around the country, a group of women met during a female liberation conference at Emanuel College. There was a workshop on, quote, women and their bodies, quote. and they shared their experiences that they had had with doctors and their frustration at how little they knew about how their bodies worked. The discussions were so provocative and fulfilling that they formed the Doctors Group, which was the forerunner to the Boston Women's Health Book Collective, to find out more about their bodies, about their lives, their sexuality, their relationships, and to talk with each other about what they had learned. They decided to put their knowledge into an accessible format that could be shared and would serve as a model for women to learn about themselves, to communicate their findings with doctors and to challenge the medical establishment to change and improve the care that women receive. In 1970, they worked with the New England Free Press to publish a 193-page course book. It was on stapled newsprint, and it was entitled Women and Their Bodies. This book was revolutionary for its frank talk about sexuality about, and about abortion, which was then illegal. And I just want to note here that, so that first title was Women and Their Bodies. They later changed the name to Women and Our Bodies, which, you know, reflects the fact that it was women themselves who were writing the book. Whereas the first title, interestingly, sounded like the women were still kind of outside of themselves, right? Like women and their bodies. They were still seeing women's bodies the way men see them with that, that, um, possessive adjective, their bodies. And then they changed it to, no, it's our bodies. Um, and so even these women who were taking on this project experienced a shift in consciousness from assuming man as the center to putting woman at the center. And then in 1971, they changed the title yet again. And um, that's its current version, which is Our Bodies, ourselves to emphasize women taking full ownership of their bodies. I just think those three titles reflect such um, a progression and evolution in women's consciousness of taking control of their bodies. So I thought that was so interesting. Um, Anyway, the book quickly became an underground success. It sold 225,000 copies, mainly by word of mouth, right at the very beginning. And the cost to buy the book was 30 cents. And they kept that cost low because they wanted all women to have access to it. In 1972, after strenuous debate, the group of founding authors decided to publish with a mainstream publisher in order to reach a wider audience. So they formally incorporated as the Boston Women's Health Book Collective and negotiated a contract with Simon & Schuster that included a 70% clinic discount for low-income women and a provision for U.S. Spanish translation, which I think is awesome. Um so the first commercial expanded edition of Our Bodies, Ourselves was published in 1973. And the preface and the first chapter, which is called Our Changing Sense of Self, um, are available online if if listeners want to look at that. So for 40 years, Our Bodies, Ourselves was updated and revised approximately every four to seven years. Um, and then that process ended in 2011, so the the most recent edition was published in in 2011. The book has sold millions of copies and received numerous honors. Um, Library Journal named the 2011 edition one of the best consumer health books of the year. Time magazine recognized Our Bodies, Ourselves as one of the best 100 nonfiction books in English since the founding of Time magazine in 1923. In 2012, the Library of Congress included the original Our Bodies, Ourselves in the exhibit Books That Shaped America. So it's a big deal. It made waves and it's really, really changed the culture. One other important detail is that as far back as 1974, publishers and women's groups in other countries started translating and adapting Our Bodies Ourselves. And they started developing books inspired by it, which again, just like gives me chills. It's so important. Um, in 2001, the Boston Women's Health Book Collective, now known as Our Bodies, Ourselves, or OBOS, formalized the Our Bodies, Ourselves Global Initiative, which provided support to and worked closely with women's groups who were adapting the book for their own cultures and for their own communities. And... Um, As of 2020, Our Bodies, Ourselves has been reproduced in 33 languages, reaching millions of women, millions of people all around the world. So that's just an introduction to the book. Well, I think we also have to mention here that
1: one of the other really important aspects of when this book came out and when it was printed is there was the only way to learn about your body And how it worked as a woman was in books written by men or through your male doctor. And that's only if he was willing to explain things to you. There's no internet. You know, this really puts the importance of the book, I think, into context.
0: That is such an important point. That's so true. Like you said, especially in the 1970s, like you'd have to go to a library to even find a book or an encyclopedia. And like you said, they're all written by men. Um, such an important point. So to, yeah, to publish this book and then to make it accessible or available for a low price and stuff. I mean, that's just so important.
1: Which made sense because women were making less money at the time so they couldn't (laughs) afford other books.
0: (laughs) That's true. I mean, even today too, right? Yeah, Yeah. totally. Okay, so like always, we're going to take turns highlighting um, parts that stuck out to us. And I just have to throw in here, like, these books especially the 2011 edition is like it it's like an encyclopedia it is gigantic and so wouldn't you say Jessica it was so hard to narrow right. down like choosing just a few points and so i mean this is a book i really recommend buying because it is a reference on every topic you can possibly think of having to do with women's not only bodies, but like emotional health and mental health. And like, it's just a women's health, totally exhaustive and thorough research book. And I do want to give you props, Jessica. Jessica read the entire first edition book and the entire current edition book in preparation for this podcast. And I like, I just think that is astonishing and amazing, Jessica. So i I think it was about a thousand pages. Yeah. With it's, both books together.
1: It's amazing. Well, I'm definitely a body nut. I love learning about the human body. And the book just was like another thing I could just dive into and learn. And I love connecting like pieces of knowledge to other pieces of knowledge and how they like interwork together and how the whole body interworks together. So I actually enjoyed reading it, and I don't think everyone m- might enjoy reading it cover to cover. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a really great book to have, like you said, if like as a reference book. Um, some
0: women like me will enjoy reading it cover to cover. Mm-hmm. That's awesome that you did that. So the first part that I wanted to highlight is from the preface, and I chose three important parts, um, and, and these parts were written by the original authors in the 1973 edition. So I'll start with a quote. Quote, you may want to know who we are. We are white. Our ages range from 24 to 40. Most of us are from middle class backgrounds and have at least some college education, and some of us have professional degrees. Some of us are married, some separated, and some of us are single. Some of us have children of our own. Some of us like spending time with children. And others of us are not sure we want to be with children. I kind of love how they phrase that. And I thought, everyone can relate to that sometimes. I am not sure I want to be with children at this moment. Anyway, Um, in short, we are both a very ordinary and very special group, as women are everywhere. We are white, middle-class women, and as such can describe only what life has been for us. But we do realize that poor women and non-white women have suffered far more from the kinds of misinformation and mistreatment than what we are describing in this book. In some ways, learning about our womanhood from the inside out has allowed us to cross over the socially created barriers of race, color, income, and class, and to feel a sense of identity with all women in the experience of being female. End quote. So I thought this was a really, really great introduction. And I was quite impressed that they're aware of their limitations because I feel that many people then and even now wouldn't have even noticed the absence of diversity because white middle class people have always just been seen as the default normal person. So I'm impressed that they acknowledged the absence of so many women Um, at the same time. I feel like because this book was originally titled Women and Their Bodies, that sounds like a universal encyclopedic reference, like we just said it is. And the subtitle of the um, the ultimate title was Our Bodies, Ourselves, a book by and for women. And so for me, I just kept hearing Sojourner Truth in my mind saying, ain't I a woman? Like, what about me? And so I love the sisterhood that these women are trying to create, but I feel like a sisterhood where all of the women are white feels to me like, um, I was thinking it feels like going to a family reunion and like starting the party and then realizing like, oh no, only some of our siblings are here. Well, then you don't start the party and you don't call it a family reunion if only some of your siblings are there. And so I just, I kind of wish that they would have stopped and said, "Uh uh-oh, like, stop the show. We're missing too many of our sisters and just pressed pause on the project until they got a more diverse group together. Um, and, and not just one token woman of color either. And like one token woman from the other side of the tracks in Boston or something, but like an actual group that reflects what the American population really looks like. If they're going to call it, you know, Our Bodies, Ourselves, a group or or a book by and for women, then it really should include all women. So looking back, it was 1970. I'm impressed that they did better than so many would have. But to me, it still leaves room for improvement. So I just have a feeling of like if Frances Beale picked that book up and like this is a book about women, she would have just like slammed it down and been really upset because I think I would have been too. Um, I should add also, I'm going to take all my excerpts from the original book um, because I'm looking at it as an artifact. Um, It's a historical representation of how women were thinking at that time. Um, But Jessica, you're going to reference sometimes um, the current edition, right?
1: Yes, all all restaurants. The two thousand eleven edition and a bit also of the nineteen seventies edition. But it's it's interesting to read the nineteen seventies edition and the two thousand edition and compare. In that amount of time, the female body has not changed, but the knowledge, um, our society's views. And also, science has evolved since then, mm. so we can see this progress in like fertility treatments. When reading these books side by side, the 1970s version doesn't not address um, fertility treatments. There, there's well, they have like 30 pages on it, very short, concise, and then the 2011 has like an entire chapter on that because mm. the science has evolved that much. Mm. And I don't know if you were thinking this also when you were reading the chapter um, in the 1970s edition on venereal disease. But I kept on thinking if they only knew that the AIDS pandemic was just around the corner, this chapter would be so different.
0: Mm, that's such a great point. Yeah, what a great point. Yeah. Like hindsight, having that, like knowing the future that they don't know. Yeah, that's really great. Yeah. Um,
1: They have uh, two full chapters on what they say STIs, sexually transmitted infections, and how to protect yourself from them in the 2011 edition, and only eight pages on STIs in the 1970s edition. And that's like a pretty big difference. Mm -hmm. And then if you think about with society's views, opening up, you know, particular topics weren't able to be discussed in the most current – did, they weren't able to be discussed in the 1970s edition, but we have them in our current edition now. And it makes me wonder actually, like, what topics are too taboo for us today mm. that we'll see in future editions of this book?
0: Mm, that's also such a good point. Yeah, that's true. Like, things that, I mean, if we think about, like, I mentioned how in Margaret Sanger's day, like, people didn't have knowledge of reproduction because it was considered obscene to talk about like you literally couldn't study it couldn't talk about it and so in the in the 1970s that was only like 40 years after that I love that I love that perspective of thinking like yeah well we'll look back at our current time and think why what was their problem why couldn't they just talk about that stuff more openly yeah it's a great and what's funny is
1: like I tried to figure out what that stuff was, but I couldn't even see it. So I guess I'm Mm. not
0: open enough to see what's going to be in the next book. You know, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Such a great point. Okay. Back to the preface. I want to share two more points. Um, Here's the next one. Quote, many women have spoken for themselves in this book, though we in the collective do not agree with all that has been written. Some of us are even uncomfortable with part of the, sorry, some of us are even uncomfortable with part of the material. We have included it anyway because we give more weight to accepting that we differ than to our uneasiness. End quote. I loved that so much. I love their openness. I love that humility. I love the love in that statement. I love that they weren't um, afraid of differences. I love that they, that they just thought, you know what, it's more important to have a big tent and say like, you know what, we're, we're going to publish in this chapter, we're going to publish these women's views in this other chapter, we'll publish these other women's views. And then women can read both and can make up their own minds. And we're not going to be threatened um, by differences. I just think that's a fantastic um, mindset to have. Um, Another part that I loved from this preface is, quote, We have been asked why this is exclusively a book about women, why we have restricted our course to women. Our answer is that we are women and as women do not consider ourselves experts on men, as men through the centuries have presumed to be experts on us. We are not implying that we think most 20th century men are much less alienated from their bodies than women are. But we know it is up to men to explore that for themselves, to come together and share their sense of themselves, as we have done. We would like to read a book about men and their bodies, end quote. So those are such powerful points. Um, I had kind of a snarky response at first, where I was like, why aren't they including men? It's kind of like that thing where people say like about Um, Black History Month, like, well, when is White History Month? And the answer is like, every other month is White History Month, like, or, or same, (laughs) right? Or like Women's History Month and like, well, when is Men's History Month? Every other month is Men's History. So I kind of like, every other book is about men and their bodies. Every other book is written by men, especially in 1970. Right. And so at first I felt a little bit, um, defensive and like, Oh my gosh, like, why are they even addressing that? But then actually, I thought that it was such a lovely response. And they're right that men, especially this is a way that patriarchy has hurt men and especially conservative religions really alienates men, boys and men from their bodies too, and can do terrible damage to how boys feel about their sexuality, how men feel about like just living in a physical body. And so I actually love that they had that really open and, um, compassionate response toward men. Um, And so I love that they say we support men exploring and learning more about themselves. And we would love to read a book about that. If you would like to write that for yourself. I loved that. Okay. So that was um, the preface. Those were some parts that I loved from the preface. Jessica, what were some things that stood out to you from the book? Well, I'm going to talk first
1: a little bit about female sexuality that was addressed in the book. Um, I just want to start like we have this really odd relationship with female genitalia and sexuality. It's like we're not allowed to say anything about our vaginas or we're not allowed to like look at it or and there's this weird like obsession with the purity of the vagina and we find uh, fictional ways to even like check to make sure that a woman has not had sex. Okay, so if you haven't heard of the vaginal corona or the hymen, it's an elastic fold of mucous membrane located just inside the entrance of the vagina, and it has no function. But many falsely believe that if your vaginal corona is not intact, that you're not a virgin. So if we read in the 2011 edition, uh, I have a quote here from that book. It says, the vaginal corona may tear or thin out during exercise, masturbation, tampon use, or any other form of vaginal penetration. Because of this, no one can look at the woman's vaginal corona and know whether she has had vaginal intercourse or even whether she has masturbated. This is just so crazy that women in other countries actually die because their vaginal corona is not intact on marriage. These women are being sentenced to death due to this male obsession and controlling over female sexuality and flat out ignorance about the female body. I looked at the hymen on Wikipedia and it stated that some women actually even undergo a restorative vaginal surgery to restore their vaginal corona. And these are the links that women are going to because of this male idea. Hmm. And it makes sense that they go and do this because this is like that surgery is saving their lives. Luckily today there's a battle to do away with this barbaric practice. In October of 2018 the UN Human Rights, UN Women of the World Health Organization stated that the this virginity testing has to end as it's seen as quote painful, humiliating and a traumatic practice constituting violence against women
0: yeah that's so upsetting. and again, just like there's so many practices um that demonstrate just that um that ideology and that mindset that it's men who own women's bodies and and you can see how it's a carryover of times when like men really did kind of almost purchase really you know, purchase a woman almost like they would purchase a cow. and like well, I require that the cow be, you know, in good shape, and they do a physical examination. And like, okay, the cow is worth that much, and that, that's just what it feels like to me. Um, yeah, like they're checking that the the female body is intact, right, before they purchase, right? Yeah, exactly, inspecting the goods. I mean that that is yeah. what it is, um, and that the. Yeah. And then, like you said, just the lack of knowledge about the body. So some poor girl, even though the practice is despicable, even if, you know, under any circumstances at all, but these, you know, usually teenage girls who actually are virgins, they do happen to never have had intercourse, even though if they had that shouldn't make them impure. But um, but they haven't. And then it's just, you know. From exercise, it said, maybe they ran really hard one day when they were nine years old and their hymen tore and they don't have it anymore. And then they're, yeah, it's just, it's it's awful. So um, I had some, some passages on female sexuality that I wanted to share as well. One of them is this, quote, we found that for many of us beginning to menstruate had not felt normal at all, but scary, embarrassing, mysterious, we realized that what we had been told about menstruation and what we had not been told, even the tone of voice it had been told in, all had had an effect on our feelings about being female, end quote. And then they later write, quote, we lived our lives as if there were something intrinsically inferior about us, end quote. So I related so much to that passage, and I've talked to friends my whole life about this. And um, just that feeling of embarrassment about just being a girl. And um, I was talking about it with my sister recently. My sister, Lindsay, is um, a labor and delivery nurse. And she was talking about, I mean, this happens all the time that women come in and they don't know about their own bodies. And partly because, like you said, Jessica, like we can't even say vagina. We can't look at a vagina. We can't acknowledge that we have a vagina or that we, that we menstruate, we're so out of touch with our own body. So Lindsay, my sister had this patient come in who was in her twenties. It wasn't like she was, you know, a 14 year old or something. She was in her twenties. And when, and Lindsay had to put a catheter in, um, and the patient said, the patient was like really worried. And she's like, wait a second. If, if a tube is going to into my bladder, how will the baby come out? So she had she's my sister is so lovely and patient and like affirming. So she I'm sure she didn't make the woman feel stupid, Um, but she had to draw the woman's anatomy on a whiteboard to show her that her baby was in her uterus and would come out her vagina and that she had a different opening that led to her bladder. She didn't know. And then Lindsay was telling me, too, that there's a nerve that goes through your your groin, and it's called the pudendal nerve. And the word pudendal comes from a Latin word meaning to be ashamed. So another thing that I learned, too, was a friend of mine in my master's program was presenting her thesis on a, a midwife in France. And she she talked about how in French um, the body is divided into body parts, which is basically everything except your gen, your genitals are your noble parts and the genitals are called in French, the shameful parts. Wow. And I, yeah, I just like all of these things, just like learning them one after another are just kind of like validating for me, like, okay, there's a reason why I have absorbed such um, a feeling of like, Yes, it's like a dissociation from those parts of the body. And so many women do. I mean, they literally, in the words we use. Um, and I just, I I want to share actually a personal experience that. So I, I watched the BBC show called The Midwife. I absolutely love it. And there was an, an episode on um, female genital cutting. And I had learned about female genital cutting at different times in my life and read a lot about it, but I thought I just kind of had this curiosity, like I wanted to know more about the practice and like the different, how it was practiced in different parts of the world. And so my online research led me to like Wikipedia learning about it. And then, you know, how Wikipedia, it's like an endless rabbit hole of clicking one link and another link. And I, yeah ended up actually clicking and i actually don't even remember what link but it was still within wikipedia just um female genitalia just like photographs so in no way like erotic at all just like what you would see in a medical textbook but just like a lot of different like photographs of women's labia just like standing there you know from the front even and um I it it surprised me actually as I just looked at all of those women body parts. I just felt this like massive sob come up through my body and I just cried and cried and cried and cried and I it almost felt like a collective experience of how cut off women have been from their own bodies. Um, So I experienced it for myself and kind of for all girls and women, just looking at like, that's us. And again, that title comes to my mind, our bodies, ourselves, and we've been so removed from this part of ourselves. And it made me so angry and I had so much grief. But then there was like a redemption that came from just looking, just just being able to look at that part of the body. Um, I found that I had a similar experience just looking at the photos in the book. And again, my reference is mostly the 1970s book from 1970 that was published in 73. And there are photographs in the book of just like, here's what it looks like. Like there's drawings and every, of course you see those in biology, but just looking at photographs, I was so uncomfortable looking at that part of the body. And um, I think just all those feelings of shame I absorbed about my body, um, are why when i read like really misogynistic things like aristotle saying that you know the woman is a mutilated male or saint thomas aquinas saying woman is defective and misbegotten or you know religious traditions that say that menstruating menstruating women are ritually unclean it doesn't just roll off my back it hurts deeply because there's a part of me that actually believes that it's true because i've absorbed it And I have to do a lot of work to remind myself that that, that message is not right. And I think if women had run the world instead of men, you know, women could have made up stories about how women's bodies are the normal ones and men's bodies are the ones that are disgusting. And like, ew, they have their bits that dangle outside their bodies instead of being inside. That's gross. And like, ew, erections, gross. Wet dreams, gross. Like, I would never, ever want that. I would never want to do that to a boy or a man. But I hate that that's been done to girls and women. And it helps me to remember that these stories are just stupid, arbitrary stories that somebody made up and we have to fight them like mentally and emotionally. And that is a big part for me of breaking down patriarchy is each woman in our own mind saying, I will not view my body that way. So uh, that's what came to my mind about that i'm a little emotional everyone knows i'm a crier by now right yes <laughs> anyway
1: crying is part of the human experience
0: that's true it's
1: a it's a trigger from your body right yeah oh well, yeah it's that's part true. of your body and yourself yeah um you know i i have felt that same thing i've i feel like i've had the same message growing up you know my my religion told me that I needed to cover up my body and that it wasn't appropriate for even like my shoulders to be exposed. Mm-hmm. And so I knew like, Oh, things that are shameful need to be hidden away. So thus, like, my body is shameful. Um, you know? And so I, I, man, um, uh, I really felt like, Oh gosh, like, this is uncomfortable to talk about if my shoulders can't be seen then like you know other parts can't even be spoken of. Mm-hmm. And as a, as a teen when I started doing yoga that really helped like shed that idea of like shame on the body. Um helped me kind of come back to my body as a place of like wonder and beauty and like a, a place to just kind of like discover and then when I moved to Holland, the Dutch culture also helped me like liberate myself from those, you know, what if we call them American ideals, I know there's other countries that have that same thing. The, the Dutch are just like so practical and they think like, this is just a body. Everyone has one. It's normal. It's not weird or gross or shameful. So like living in that culture and having that idea kind of like soak in helps me get rid of it. In Holland it's the body's not like sexualized like it is in the states and it's not shameful also like it here is here in the states the human body is literally just that it's a human body which is like really liberating when you're being taught that story of shame to just be like hey like what this is the practical like normal view like it's just a body there's nothing to be shameful about it everyone has a body my grandfather, like he would go back to go visit his family in the Netherlands, and he'd come back and tell me these stories of how he, would like, just go skinny dipping. Really, and, opa? Yeah. Oh my yeah, gosh! Like, into his into his eighties, every time he went over there, because like I, he didn't do that in the states, because like yeah, yeah, you know, he'd get arrested over yeah. here. So, but over Whoa. there, like, and he'd have this like smile on his face, like he was like proud of it.
0: I just loved that. Um, oh my kids are gonna love knowing that about opa oh my goodness that's amazing and the other thing that is also kind of awesome about that is
1: like hey he's like an old man and like old bodies are also respected like you can be like saggy and wrinkly and it's still a body and that's awesome (laughs) so yeah while i was living over there i was like what's like release the body shame and like, let's just embrace this Dutch lifestyle. And so I started sunbathing topless in the parks there, just like all the other Dutch women. And I was like, yeah, they're just breasts. It's just like another body part, like an arm or, you know. right. Um, And then my husband and I, like we went to co-ed full nude saunas together on a regular basis, which is the norm over there. And it was like, it's really liberating to go and see like a whole bunch of naked women bodies in every shape and size like Mm -hmm. not just like a model the only bodies that we really see that are like nude are models
0: Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) they're professional skinny women like their Mm -hmm. job is to be professionally skinny Mm -hmm. Uh, and we need to like be reminded like women come in all shapes and sizes sometimes we forget this Mm because we're constantly like bombarded by like these edited posts and posts on social media and like this obsession with only showing this like perfect woman's body and like film and television and other media platforms. (sighs) Uh, I'm really glad I have this like experience in the Netherlands um, to balance out like these toxic ideas I was raised with.
0: Can I just say, Jessica, I feel like this is blowing my mind because I feel like that is what is missing for so many women. Like I I have conversations with, you know, friends and sisters and stuff who are like we know this in part of our minds where we're like, yeah, we know those images are doctored, they're airbrushed. We know that those are professional models. We know that women come in all shapes and sizes, like but I feel like it's in one part of my brain I know that, but I've absorbed too many messages throughout Like it just I can't reteach myself just with those sentences. And I feel like what would maybe do the work of actually undoing the harm is to actually sunbathe topless, like to actually make yourself do it or go to a nude sauna. Then it's not just an idea in your mind that's trying to combat all of that messaging it's like actually making yourself be okay with other people seeing you, seeing other people. I feel like that is, I don't know. I just feel like that would be so powerful in undoing the damage. It sounds like it was for you. Yeah. There's there's a sauna over here where I am in Southern California that
1: is like, oh, women are nude. It's co- it's not co-ed. Um, you know, it's okay. so like The women are nude in their own section, but going to something like that you know you're still within the laws uh, okay and, and I feel like it's really powerful to see other bodies also
0: mm-hmm. okay I'm gonna go s- with
1: you I'm gonna come
0: to Southern California will okay you go with me I will we'll have but to hold we my see hands. you know
1: even if you see a woman's body in a bathing suit like mm-hmm. the bathing suit's lifting her breast up right. like parts right. are covered you know so you don't really see like what a body looks like nude in the mirror except for your own
0: mm-hmm. and
1: then you're comparing it to like, magazines these magazines or even like someone on the beach who's like their breasts are lifted up with their bathing suit you know so
0: yeah
1: it's not an accurate comparison yeah it's just really not yeah so yeah but you know even with like that whole experience of like letting my body be seen i was still like i still had not looked at my vagina in a mirror Mm -hmm. and the very beginning of the book Like, I don't know if you remember seeing that image of this woman Mm -hmm. looking at herself with a mirror. Mm -hmm. And then the next day I had an OBGYN appointment and I was like, I'm going to ask him for a mirror. Good for you. So I asked him for a mirror. So when he checked my cervix, I even like, I got to actually even see my cervix, not just like my vagina, but all the way down into my cervix. And it was the first time I'd ever seen that body part. In 36 years. Hmm. (laughs) And I told my OBGYN, I was like, my husband sees his reproductive organs every single day. And this is my first time seeing mine in 36 years. Wow. And then at the end of my appointment, like a little kid getting a lollipop after their doctor's visits, my OBGYN gave me my very first speculum as (laughs) a (laughs)
0: like a lollipop (laughs) that's so awesome oh my gosh you just asked him like can I have a I did not
1: no I didn't ask him I was so excited looking at like my body for the first time he's like oh I'm gonna make her day and just (laughs) gave it to me without me even asking I was like really I can have it and he's like yeah we have hundreds of these lying around (laughs) like wow
0: that's so so awesome.
1: I've actually been using it mm-hmm. um, because I've read in the book that your cervix changes colors through your cycle. Hmm. And so I was like, oh, that's interesting.
0: Like now I have a speculum so I can check that out. That is amazing. And so can like, you see it? Like you can see that it changes colors.
1: Yeah. Well, I had to take pictures. So Uh I've been making sure no one scrolls through the photos on my phone also. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm like, okay, you can see me naked like in a sauna, but it's a different thing to scroll through a picture of my vagina on my phone. (laughs) Um, But yeah, you can can see the color change. That's
0: amazing. Wow.
1: So I, uh, that's, hey, Amy, here's another part of your like liberating your body, go buy a speculum and check out your cervix.
0: Wow. You are forcing me to grow maybe more than I'm comfortable growing, Jessica. Uh, (laughs) You have some homework now. I have homework. (laughs) Yes. It's like a therapy session. It's perfect. I love it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I believe in it. I do. I believe in it. I think that's so powerful. I love it. Okay. Well, back to the book, Um, there are a couple more parts that I wanted to share Um, here's one quote for many of us. It has been difficult to be open and honest about our sexuality as we manage to be more trusting with each other. We found that talking about ourselves and our sexuality can be very liberating, which by the way, is like literally what is happening right now in this conversation, Jessica, (laughs) for me. Okay. Um, and they continue, we are learning to define our sexuality in our own terms, First, by getting acquainted with our individual sexual patterns and responses and not just letting sex happen to us, we are learning to listen to our own rhythms. Second, we are learning to see and to express our own needs as valid. Only by learning to please ourselves can we have more mutual and honest relationships. And then I want to read one more quote. They say, quote, we are all so oppressed by sexual images, formulas, goals, and rules that it is almost impossible even to think about sex outside the context of success and failure. The sexual revolution, liberated, orgastic women, groupies, communal lovemaking, has made us feel that we must be able to have sex with impunity, without anxiety, under any conditions and with anyone, or we're uptight freaks. These alienating, inhuman expectations are no less destructive or degrading than the Victorian Puritanism we all so proudly rejected. It's just oppression by another name. We are simultaneously bombarded with two conflicting messages, one from our parents, churches, and schools, that sex is dirty and therefore we must keep ourselves pure for the one love of our lives, and the other from Playboy, almost all other women's magazines, and especially TV commercials. End quote. so that's kind of a summary really of what we were just talking about but it's really interesting that this was written in 1970 with you know with, they're talking about women's liberation and like the free love movement of the hippies and whatever but they're they're like that that doesn't make us feel liberated either like w- real people are are that's you know that doesn't reflect reality for real people and i was just thinking like can you even imagine what they would think when they're talking about women's magazines and tv commercials i'm like <laughs> <laughs> yeah just be grateful you didn't have instagram yet just be grateful you didn't have like I porn know. on the internet and so i mean they felt bombarded can you even imagine what they would think of now and i mean the women who are writing this book are the age of like our you know parents and grandparents so they they do see what it is like now and um but that yeah, part was just some
1: go ahead they they, they need some nude saunas liberate themselves.
0: They do. We all do. (laughs) We should all lobby to get one in each of our communities. I love it. Um, But anyway, to summarize that part is just them talking about defining sexuality in their own terms and then the power that comes from talking about it with other women, I thought was really powerful. Um, I just realized that I actually took the next part two, because it came next in the book. So I'll, I'll do this one. And then Jessica, you'll have your, um, parts that you wanted to highlight. Um, I felt it was really important to talk about, um, the chapter on homosexuality, um, because this was groundbreaking for them to publish this chapter. The chapter title in the 1973 edition is in America, they call us dykes. And, um, I I thought back to our episode on the book, A Room of One's Own, where we talked about Virginia Woolf twitching the curtain by acknowledging that sometimes women do like women. And um, Simone de Beauvoir in The Second Sex has a whole chapter on the lesbian, but we didn't end up talking about it on the the episode. And so I want to highlight this because this is really revolutionary um, for them to publish this chapter. And in the introduction, they they say that this chapter or this section was written by nine women in the gay women's liberation movement who had been meeting together for a few weeks, and they were deciding whether or not to write the chapter. And so these women say, quote, "...we had no connection with the group that was writing the rest of this book, except individual friendships between some of us. In fact, we disagreed, and still do, with many of their opinions." However, we took on the project because we thought that it was very important for any book dealing with women and sexuality to have a good section on lesbianism, and because we thought that writing it would help us sort out some of our own ideas, feelings, and politics around being lesbians in this society, end quote. So I'm just really moved by this. I'm moved by thinking of you know, this group of straight women who are writing Our Bodies Ourselves, and they recognize the need to include their gay sisters. Um, many women then or even today, I think, wouldn't even notice that gay women were missing. So I I really think it's wonderful that they invited them and that I can just imagine this, like these queer women deliberating for several weeks and realizing they had different differences of opinion with some of these straight women that might've been like really, really hurtful to them. And, um, and, and vice versa, the beliefs and the lifestyle of these gay women may have felt really scary to the straight women. And I'm just inspired that they proceeded anyway and they included each other's perspectives Um, In just this spirit of openness and trying to understand each other. So I'm just going to read a few things from this chapter that I think are important representations of what life was like for gay women in in 1970. And I just want to point out so the Stonewall riots um, had just happened in New York just the year before. And um, the Stonewall Riots weren't the first demonstration for gay rights, but they were probably the most visible and well-known. They're kind of considered to be the, big, the first big moment for the gay liberation movement. And so this was like brand new in the American consciousness. So I'm just going to read a couple of quotes. Quote, we write from many different points of view, but we all have in common that we dig being gay. <laughs> we think it's one of the most positive aspects of our lives. We want to break down the myths, misrepresentations, and outright lies that make possible our oppression and exploitation as lesbians, and that control not only our lives, but the lives of straight women as well. The horror and fear with which others view us have served to ghettoize us, to isolate us not only from the straight world, but from each other, since we must stay hidden to survive. This chapter is a beginning. That means there is much more to come. There are many things we have had to leave out because of space limitations or because we do not have the experience to write about them. We have included nothing about lesbianism in the armed forces or about the problems of Black lesbians or older gay women. We do not deal adequately with questions of class, legal problems, and many other subjects. We hope eventually to expand this chapter and use it as the beginning of an anthology by and about gay women. We welcome your criticisms and ideas. Write to us at, and then they have an ad, their address in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Again, I kind of wish they had stopped the whole project until they could recruit a more diverse group because they're a- acknowledging like there's nothing about Black gay women, there's nothing about you know older gay women. But and and I do think it would have been enriched if they'd had more voices in the conversation. But again, I appreciate them admitting it. Like they're saying, we don't deal adequately with many subjects. Um, I just think it's really amazing that they were that vulnerable and we get a window into their minds to read what it felt like at the beginning of the movement and how aware they were of those that they were leaving out and saying, please give us feedback, give us criticism. You know, this is a limited view, but we're starting with what we know and we're going to take this kind of scary step. So I really encourage people to read um, this book, honestly. And, um, there are a lot of firsthand stories about what it felt like to, you know, for these women to realize they were gay and to, you know, to grapple with that when they were young and then to come out to their families. And it's just a a really powerful experience to read these women's stories. So I highly encourage people to read them. Um, and I just think it must have been incredibly liberating to to speak freely about their real lived experiences, and then to write them and have them published and in published in a mainstream reference book. Um, and I think, again, like reading these experience help experiences helps to change people's hearts. If people have internalized bias, or you know, have been taught that like it's really it's a sin to be gay, it really is a powerful thing to read what it really feels like for our sisters. So, you know, and the more people change their hearts individually, the more society can change um and to make a space in the human family for our siblings. So, did you have any thoughts from this section, Jessica? Yeah,
1: well, um, you know, they even make a bigger space for more people and more inclusion in the 2011 edition.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: and they even they go into gender identity. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I i feel like, you know, they couldn't even approach that topic in the 1970s because mm-hmm. if they would have approached it, it was so taboo, they would have had to discredit the whole book. It wouldn't have gotten anywhere, you know, so they, had, mm-hmm. they either had to leave it out because they wasn't on their radar or because it. With the views of that time, it would have discredited the book. But luckily today we're able to include individuals from every gender identity and sexual orientation. And I actually have a quote from the the most current book. And it kind of talks about the, the view of gender. Um, quote. In U.S. culture, gender is believed to follow directly from one's biological sex. So a baby born with a vagina is considered a female, called a girl, and expected to grow up to be a woman who acts, dresses, and talks in a manner considered by culture and her community to be feminine. A baby born with a penis is considered male called a boy, and expected to grow up to be a man who acts, dresses, and talks in a manner considered to be masculine. In this binary way of thinking, our genitals, not our internal sense of stealth, are the deciding factor. End quote. Uh, This view of gender is what I was taught as a child. Mm -hmm. Um, I was taught everyone outside of these like views uh, of like boy girl like you're born with a penis you're a boy born with a vagina you're a girl like everything outside of that was a perversion but i don't understand why our culture needs to determine that our internal sense of self like who we are as a person is based on the organ that we are born with Now, after reading this chapter, I started to kind of pull apart the ways I act masculine and the ways I act feminine. And I started to see that I don't really fit into society's construct of femininity all the time. Mm -hmm. And so why are we placing these labels on people? Why don't we just allow the freedom between gender based on who we are instead of our our anatomy?
0: Mm Mm-hmm. You're the one, Jessica, who who highlighted that quote to me. Um, sex is between the legs and gender is between the ears, right? Yeah, yes. And I thought that was also that's in just, the book, yeah. I just thought that yeah. was such a um a really pithy and like concise way of understanding it. Like, oh yeah, that's right. It's just um it's psychological, emotion emotional and sociological and stuff that makes up our gender expression. So yeah. Great point. But our culture just
1: mixes it up. Yes. Um, Right. um, I have the next section here on uh, reproductive responsibility. And I'm going to just start off with a quote from the book from the 1970s. Many couples do not even talk much about birth control. The man assumes the woman has taken care of everything. The woman protects herself as best as she can perhaps resenting the situation and repressing her anger. As they have intercourse, she hopes she won't get pregnant. No matter how good the sex is between them, his unwillingness to share in the prevention of pregnancy lurks in the back of her mind. She can't help but wonder if he thinks that birth control is my business What will he think if my birth control method fails and I get pregnant? Then he is free to leave or to withdraw from me emotionally. The birth control issue highlights the central aspect of our vulnerability, our dependence on men not to let us down, end of quote. So this idea that women are responsible for birth control still hasn't changed in the last 41 years from these in between these two books this this next quote is from the 2011 edition just kind of illustrating that our culture and media rarely address male responsibility in the prevention of STIs and unplanned pregnancies the prevailing societal message about contraception targets women and often ignore the impact that unprotected sex can have on a man. Using a condom is the easiest way for a man to get involved with birth control with the birth control process, but they must be willing to do so. Some men are not interested in using condoms because they have received the message that it's unmasculine. They have the preconceived notion that sex is not as good with condoms. These attitudes reveal a lack of education a lack of respect for women, they also free the men from taking responsibility for their actions. Uh, this is just crazy. On like mm-hmm. 42 years. It's the same idea that like men are just like hands free of the whole birth control situation. But in the 2011 edition, it's finally um, socially acceptable to claim that the man holds Uh, just as much responsibility of birth control as the woman where they didn't claim that in, in the, uh, the one, the version from the Mm seventies. So this next quote is, is from the 2011 version and it states, quote, birth control is not just a woman's issue. Men benefit from the use of birth control in many ways, including being able to decide when and if they will father a child and being able to protect themselves and their partners from sexually transmitted infections. When a man leaves the decision about contraception up to the woman, he not only creates an unfair burden for her, but also forfeits his ability to prevent an unplanned pregnancy by failing to take responsibility for uh, contraception. Too many men become fathers before they're capable or willing. Now, I will say, though, although this is socially acceptable to claim that men have an equal role in birth control and pregnancy, it, I still feel like today, when a woman has an unplanned pregnancy, it's still seen as, le- as the, the um, female was irresponsible, and the man can just get away without social discrimination about the pregnancy. Well, what do you think, Amy?
0: Totally. Oh, I uh, totally agree. And um, people have heard, it reminds me of this this um, Twitter thread that people have heard me reference on past episodes, and I will continue to reference it in future episodes because I think it's so important. It's Gabrielle Blair's Twitter thread on abortion. And if it's okay, I'd actually like to read just a little bit of it here. Yeah. Go ahead. So this is Gabrielle Blair. Um, You can find this on Design Mom um, and just look up. She calls it my Twitter thread on abortion. Quote, I've been listening to men grandstand about women's reproductive rights, and I'm convinced men actually have zero interest in stopping abortion. Here's why. If you want to stop abortion, you need to prevent unwanted pregnancies. And men are 100% responsible for unwanted pregnancies. No, for real, they are. Perhaps you're thinking, it takes two. And yes, it does take two for intentional pregnancies. But all unwanted pregnancies are caused by the irresponsible ejaculations of men, period. But what about birth control? If a woman doesn't want to risk an unwanted pregnancy, why wouldn't she just use birth control? If a woman can manage to figure out how to get an abortion, surely can get, she can get birth control, right? Great questions. Modern birth control is possibly the greatest invention of the last century, and I am very grateful for it. It's also brutal. The side effects for many women are ridiculously harmful. So ridiculous that when an oral contraception for men was created, it wasn't approved because of the side effects. And the list of side effects was about a third as long as the known side effects for women's oral contraception. There's a lot to be unpacked just in that story, but I'll simply point out that as a society, we really don't mind if women suffer, physically or mentally, as long as it makes things easier for men. But good news, men. Even with the horrible side effects, women are still very willing to use birth control. Unfortunately, it's harder to get than it should be. Birth control options for women requires a doctor's appointment and a prescription. It's not free and often not cheap. In fact, there are many people trying to make it more expensive by fighting to make sure insurance companies refuse to cover it. Oral contraceptives for women can't be acquired easily or at the last minute, and they don't work instantly. If we're talking about the pill, it requires consistent daily use and doesn't leave much room for mistakes, forgetfulness, or unexpected disruptions or daily schedules. And again, the side effects can be brutal. And then she writes in all caps, I'm still grateful for it. Please don't take it away. I'm just saying women's birth control isn't simple or easy. In contrast, let's look at birth control for men, meaning condoms. Condoms are readily available at all hours, inexpensive, convenient, and don't require a prescription. They're effective and work on demand instantly. Men can keep them stocked up just in case, so they're always prepared. Amazing! They are so much easier than birth control options for women. As a bonus, in general, women love when men use condoms. They keep us from getting STDs. They don't lessen our pleasure during sex or prevent us from climaxing. So why in the world are there ever unwanted pregnancies? Why don't men just use condoms every time they have sex? Seems so simple, right? Oh, I remember. Men don't love condoms. In fact, men frequently pressure women to have sex without a condom. And it's not unheard of for men to remove the condom during sex without the women's permission or knowledge. Pro tip, that's assault. Why would men want to have sex without a condom? Good question. Apparently, it's because for the minutes they are penetrating their partner, having no condom on gives the experience more pleasure. So, there are men willing to risk getting a woman pregnant, which means literally risking her life her health, her social status, her relationships, and her career so that they can experience a few minutes of slightly more pleasure? Is that for real? Yes. Yes, it is. End quote. I'll stop there. It's longer than that. But um, listeners, please read the whole thing. Just go to designmom.com and search my Twitter thread on abortion. Wow, Amy, that's
1: really powerful. And um, it hit me on a really personal level. Sorry, I'm (laughs) getting off. Because of my medical situations that cause such serious hemorrhaging after my children's births and postpartum and threaten my life, it's very dangerous for me to have another child. My medical risk increases with each birth as well. So for me, birth control saves me from being in a life-threatening situation. And having an abortion available is like a backup lifesaver. What's scary to me, though, is in the book, I saw that there's no 100% effective birth control method. So my husband had offered to have a vasectomy after our our daughter was born. This is only this is I mean 99% effective but has zero effect if I was to get raped. And being a woman who's who has been attacked by men on three accounts this like wasn't really good enough. Uh, My husband's vasectomy is not going to save me
0: if a rapist impregnates me. Could you, would you mind talking about that a little bit more, Jess? That's not something we've ever talked about before. Yeah, so
1: two of these attacks happened in broad daylight. One of them occurred uh, while I was just at a gas station pumping gas in the middle of the day. And then another man saw this man coming after me and pulled into the gas station and pulled the man away from me, and then stayed there so I could get in my car and get away.
0: When did and that happen jessica when i i
1: I was like probably about twenty or twenty one when that happened. oh, and my that was gosh. just in Southern California in the suburbs. Oh my gosh, so it's not like I was in dangerous space or anything. Just, you know, a 20 year old pumping gas at a gas station in the middle of the suburbs. Um, and then the second time I was walking up to my sister's front door and this was also in the middle of the day and a man grabbed me and he like held me up against the side of my sister's building. And I just like forcefully like shoved him to the ground like as hard as I could and then just ran to my sister's door.
0: And then (laughs) just a stranger, like you didn't even see him coming and he just bumped you against the wall. Yeah. They're just total strangers. Like
1: I am just walking up to her front door and a stranger just like comes up to and the thing that I, I think I see these like these numbers on like women who get raped and it's mostly men who they know. And I'm just thinking, I've been attacked three times by strangers. Like, I like (sighs) the the third time I was just, like, riding my bike home from dinner with friends while I was living in Europe. And there's, like, this guy who tried to, this man, he just tried to knock me off my bike. And I, like, I saw he was about to knock me off. And I just powered up and blasted over him. And I ran over him with my bike and just... Pedaled as hard as I could to get home
0: oh my gosh I'm speechless I cannot believe that happened to you and uh yeah I mean I just I just
1: think like I I got away unscathed you know in all three situations I was luckily like I wasn't physically harmed you know I like was able to like me forcefully get two of the men away and have that help from the other man with the third situation. But a lot of women are not so lucky, you know, like this, what did I, I read in the book, like the 2011 version that one in four women in the United States are physically assaulted or raped by a romantic partner.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And like reading that made me realize like, I might, I might not be so lucky next time. Like those are pretty high numbers. Uh, but, one in four, <laughs> like yeah. we all know more than, we all know four women, right? <laughs> yeah. Um. So I went and had my fallopian tubes like completely removed, but still, right? Still fallopian tubes removed. I still have a 1% chance of pregnancy. And, wow. and that if in that 1% chance, if I know that I need to choose for an abortion to make sure that for my life. Right. So my children have a mother. And so I don't leave my husband as a single father. Like having that abortion as like an option to me is, is like a lifesaver. That's like my life vest. Hmm. If this fails.
0: My gosh, Jessica, I did not know any of this. I mean, I, this is so sobering and I'm really grateful you shared it on this episode where Um, as you know, we've talked about how we're going to be talking about abortion on our episode on Roe v. Wade in just a couple of weeks. Um, so we'll talk more about that, but I'm really, really grateful that you shared that. Um, so actually, um, actually talking about, you know, unwanted pregnancies and, uh, and dangerous pregnancies reminds me that I wanted to ask you to talk about sex ed also, because that, that does come up in the books. And I feel like you have such great insight having lived in the Netherlands, because I've actually mentioned and will mention on the abortion on the Roe v. Wade episode, we're going to talk about the Dutch and how they do sex education differently. So could you talk about that? Yeah, yeah. So um,
1: the Dutch, they like have such a different way, like in approaching like Female body, sex, birth control, sex education, it's its just like very different from what we're used to here in the States. Um, I feel like there's some really big sort of cultural ideas that the Dutch have and they use, they use that to approach like a lot of their life. But it, you also see it in the way they approach these ideas. So those being like the Dutch are extremely honest. They're really tolerant of others and they're also super practical they couldn't even fathom leaving aspects of sex education out of uh the criteria because it wouldn't be truthful to them we're Mm. in the states like we do that uh Mm -hmm. we sometimes leave chunks out Mm -hmm. and telling the full truth is more important to the dutch than telling just the part of sex ed that you wish was true if uh if they get an sti or unwanted pregnancy without a common, they want to know that that's a possibility so they can make the safer choice and wear the condom you know um mm-hmm. they're not searching for something that sounds nice or this fairy tale version of sex ed where women don't have sex and until they get married then teenagers are sweet and innocent you know they tell the truth and In America, we don't always want the truth. You know, we want to be told we look skinny in those jeans. We want (laughs) to think that our teenagers are not having sex, Mm -hmm. that women do not have sex before they get married. So we teach abstinence because it's what we want the truth to be. But the Mm. Dutch, like, they, yeah, that just sounds ridiculous to them. Totally Mm -hmm. ridiculous to them. And then if we talk about the Dutch tolerance, right? They, they tolerate everyone's decision. They want everyone to make their own decision. That's okay. That's your decision. That's your life. That's your body. You make those choices. And this, just, this means that they like respect your freedom to make your own choices, even if they don't agree with the choices. So should a Dutch teenager choose to have sex, that decision will be tolerated By their parents and teachers and their community. Hmm. And because of this, uh, the Dutch, like a Dutch teenager is just like so much more likely to go talk to their parents and ask them about Mm, sex. Right. Instead of, where else do we ask about sex? Google. Like Imagine what they're going to find on there. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. They know their parents are going to tolerate their decisions. So there's a comfort in asking those questions that we don't have in the States. Mm. And then, you know, if we dive down into how practical the Dutch are, they, they literally approach every aspect of their life with like extreme practicality. They know it's practical to provide accurate information about reproduction and contraception and STIs. And they don't hide or manipulate information because they're scared of what a woman or a teen might do uh, and that they might have sex if they learn about contraception. You know, Mm -hmm. they are practical in thinking that, like, humans have sexual urges and humans will have sex. Teens will have sex women will have sex. So why don't we give them the information so they can have sex in a more safe way? And it goes to show also, because like I I saw a UNICEF report that said 75% of Dutch teens used a condom the first time they had sex. And then we compare that to the CDC report where 40% of American teens used a condom the first time they had sex.
0: Mm-hmm. Like
1: that's a pretty big gap. Huge. Um, yeah, it's huge. So, well, we are gonna have more um, sexually transmitted disease in America. We're gonna have more pregnancies here because of that. And that just goes to show you that hiding that information about reproduction and how that works, it's, it's teens are gonna make unsafe decisions. They don't know what the safe decision is. You're not giving them the information. In the 2011 edition of the book, I read that there's changes in sex education programming during the presidency of George W. Bush. And so I'm just going to read that quote from the book here. It states, quote, there's a heavy investment in sex educational programming aimed exclusively at promoting abstinence and prohibited by law from discussing the benefits of contraception. Teens' use of contraceptives declined. In 2016, there was a rise in teen pregnancies. And much of the federally approved abstinence-only curriculum included false, misleading, or distorted information about reproductive health. Now, like, the Dutch have a phrase... That they would use to describe that type of curriculum, they would say du ma eif lecker normal, meaning like just be normal. The Dutch would think that this was like so absurd mm-hmm. and impractical. It would be completely unnormal and odd to teach sex at this way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. They're just like totally different. They're they're also so open about, you know, talking about the body and sex. The woman's body is not seen as this like taboo subject like it is here in the States. Uh, In the United States, you know, we talk about, uh, we can't talk about vaginas or the fact that babies come out of vagina. And um, it's even taboo to breastfeed in like certain public spaces in the United States. But this openness about the female body allows the Dutch men to have a more respectful view of the uh, of female bodies and of women. And I can say, like, I definitely see my husband's cultural upbringing in regards to the female body in our relationship together. A few hours after my daughter was born, we were at the hospital. We were in, like, you know, our private room at the hospital. And I was walking out of the bathroom. I was wearing those, like... Every woman, every woman who's had a baby knows these these amazingly um, unattractive underwear that the hospital gives you <laughs> after birth. Mm-hmm, it's like totally. that mesh,
0: mesh, granny panty.
1: Yeah. 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 Um, so I'm wearing that. I have a huge pad inside there. I have a mm-hmm. huge ice pack inside of there. All those mm-hmm. tuck pads they give you. And like just not the most attractive thing I've mm-hmm. ever worn. Mm-hmm. Um, I had um this belly that looked like I was kind of pregnant still and it was like but it was like droopy you know (laughs) I had blood dripping down the inside of my leg I had milk leaking out of my breasts a needle stuck in my arm hospital bands on my wrist and I hadn't slept for like 35 hours (laughs) and um my Dutch husband reaches his arm out to me and looks at me with like emotion just like overpowering his expression and he has this like deep sincerity in his voice and he says to me oh you are so sexy I mean I I, honestly I can't tell you how important that was to me to have him say that right in a moment when like my body feels like physically like torn apart from the inside Mm -hmm. out and then Mm -hmm. to hear that like this man that I love recognizes and sees all of these crazy body changes I just went through as like beautiful and sexy. Wow. And that's like so powerful. Yeah. Um, I'm so, so grateful that like he was raised in this culture that taught him how to like nurture and respect the power of the female body and what it's capable of.
0: Hmm. And you think that he cut, he got that, Because from the time he was little, it was just like instead of like, don't talk about a girl's body. Don't say that word. Don't look at that. It was just like, here's what it is so that there's no shame in it. Is that what you're saying? Like he just he absorbed a totally different message of like,
1: this is one of the miracles
0: of life. Like, let's learn about it. Right. He doesn't have any sisters.
1: So it's not like ah. he's talking about this with his sisters, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, so like this is just like the cultural view. Like this is where yeah. he was raised. And, I, you know, his his brothers are also like really respectful of, of their wives mm-hmm.
0: in a similar way.
1: And when they get they, the like, message
0: in school, right? I mean, it, they get,
1: yeah, I mean, like, it's it's like taught in the curriculum. It's also like fully absorbed in society. Like, I don't know a Dutch woman that's ever gone on a diet. Um, Mm. That doesn't sound practical to them. Like, Mm. why would you change your body to fit something else? Like, the Dutch women are not, they're not model skinny, but they're also not overweight. They're just like a normal size. I've never heard a woman, a Dutch woman look at herself in the mirror. and like, oh, I look so fat today. Never heard that in six years Mm. of living there. I hear that all the time in the States. As a woman, you hear other women here say that stuff. Yeah. It's it's just not something they 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 don't they don't expect perfection. They don't expect everyone to be models and they just yeah, just have this respect for
0: for the female body in a way that we can't really imagine in the States. So this brings us to the end of the conversation, Jessica, and I'm so grateful for everything you shared and um wondered if you could just share maybe one of your takeaways or one last passage from the book that meant a lot to you. Yes. I actually, um, this is
1: in the, in 1970s version of the book and this quote just perfectly illustrates the book to me. So I'm just going to read it and then leave it at that quote. We are saying this knowledge is power to get control of your own life and your own destiny is the first and most important task, which can also be the efforts of a whole lifetime, but it begins with getting control over your own body everywhere in your life. End quote.
0: That's powerful. Thank you, Jessica. Thanks for that last quote and thanks for being here today and for this really powerful, um, really potentially life-changing conversation about some life-changing topics. Um, I, again, really recommend that women look more into this book. Um, And I just feel like your perspective and your life experience just completely, really wonderfully equipped you to talk about this and you shared such important insights. So thanks for being here today, Jessica. This was awesome. Well, thanks for inviting me. That was definitely a great experience for my side too. And thank you to listeners um, for being with us today and for um, being on this journey with us. Um, in preparation for next week, we will be discussing a really, really important uh, piece of legislation, Title IX This is probably the most well known portion of the United States Education Amendments, which were passed in 1972. It's just one sentence long, so if you look it up online, you can read it in a few seconds. Um, It's a really short text, but it has huge implications. You've probably heard about it in reference to women's sports or to sexual harassment and assault on college campuses. And we'll address both of those issues in our conversation next week. Um, It's an inspiring topic. It's an inspiring piece of legislation, but it's also really sobering. So be prepared for us to talk about some hard things. Um, It's an incredibly important conversation. And so we'll be really excited for you to join us for the discussion of Title IX next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy.